This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Merlin Sheldrake. Thinking about fungi can make the world look different. The lives of fungi can jolt us out of well-worn habits of thought, can help to make the familiar seem unfamiliar again, and can help loosen the grip of many of our, our concepts uh, and lead us into new ways of thinking and new ways of thinking we really do need at, at this moment in time. Merlin is a biologist and author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures, a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller, and winner of the Royal Society Book Prize and the Wainwright Prize. Merlin is a research associate of the Vry University Amsterdam and works with the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks and the Fungi Foundation. A keen brewer and fermenter, he is fascinated by the relationships that arise between humans and more-than-human organisms. You can find him at MerlinSheldrake.com. Well, Merlin, thank you so much for joining us on this wintry day. So excited to wander with you. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, gosh, so many places that we could begin, but I definitely want to start off by acknowledging how significant your work has been and how much incredible attention you've brought to the fungal world. And with this, I think so much of the human experience is about meaning making, which you clearly work towards in your research and writing. And I'm wondering if you could show us down the path of our relationship to fungi beyond just momentary interest or fascination, but down to real deep, even life-altering and affirming meaning. The way that, that I think about it, I suppose, is that fungi are, you know, they're a kingdom of life, which is as broad a category as animals or plants. There's lots of ways to be a fungus. And this is a hugely diverse group of organisms that um, that underlies the regenerative capacity of the biosphere. These are organisms that are responsible for so many vital processes that maintain the composition of the Earth's atmosphere, that create soil, that, um, that nourish plants, um, that we enter into relationship with the moment that we um, become uh, an embodied creature on this planet. Um, relating to fungi is not an option. And so um, the question is, how much do we presence the fact that we're relating to fungi? So 
in answer to your question, um, I find that weaving the story of the living world that one might have, um, or deepening it and expanding it to include the fungal kingdom, um, such that life itself is a story play that plays out partly as a result of fungal activity uh, and in response to fungal activity. Um, then the whole process of being alive, the whole process of, um, of existing on the planet, whoever you are, whether you're human or otherwise, becomes, becomes something to do with fungi. Uh, and so the act of being alive, uh, however you make meaning of that, is, uh, is embedded within, within fungal story and fungal presence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that word presence, which to me feels like one of the most valuable things we have at this time and probably always of what we can share with each other and our relationship with the earth. And what is the benefit of popularizing fungi? Like what maybe do you want from this? Or I think about your work with conservation and spun, but also even the collective consciousness it's really incredible to see how much the interest in fungi have grown over even just the past decade, five years, two years, definitely from your book. And it's really in so many ways exciting. But uh, I do wonder, did you have an intention? Were you hoping, oh, I really hope this inspires people maybe, or what was your hope? I think there were three main hopes in, in certainly in writing Entangled Life. I mean, I do a lot of popularizing of, of fungi outside that context these days, but um, in that project, I think the first hope was that I might play my small part in helping to alleviate people's fungus blindness that, um, that are just a sheer ignorance of fungi means that most of our accounts of the living world are radically incomplete. An account of life that doesn't include fungi is, account, is an account of, um, of a living world that doesn't exist. And so I wanted to help to, to reveal uh, these organisms that spend so much of their time hidden from us. So it's really a, a, quite a basic hope there. Um, but there was another level of hope, I suppose, which was that one of the things that fungi teach us is about the the way that life is relationship, the interminglement of embodied being on the planet. And um, in so many ways, fungi teaches this. And so I, I wanted, maybe on my second hope, was that, um, that through this discussion of fungi, it might become clearer that life is relationship and that organisms can't be thought of as, as somehow separate from um, the many other organisms that they are living with, that being is always being with, uh, that becoming is always becoming with. And I think this is a very fundamental truth uh, about the living world and certainly not a new idea. Uh, I think modern science is um, remembering this idea, perhaps. Uh, uh, perhaps modern science have forgotten this for, uh, for a little while, but it's certainly an idea that you find present in so many traditional knowledge systems around the world. Um, so... Um, but I think fungi can, can lead us there. And, and so I think my second hope was that, 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 that the discussion of fungi could reveal a, a world of interminglement, of interrelationship, of interdependence, of intimate reciprocal dependence. Um, and perhaps third was that, I mean, fungi are so weird and their lives confound so many of our categories, so many of the categories we use to organize our existence and I feel that, I've certainly felt this myself, that, that the lives of fungi can jolt us out of well-worn habits of thought. 
um, can help to make the familiar seem unfamiliar again, um, can help loosen the grip of many of our, our concepts um, and lead us into new ways of thinking and new ways of thinking we really do need at, at this moment in time. So um, uh, that was perhaps the, the, the largest of the hopes of the three hopes that, um, yeah, that, that, that fungi, thinking about fungi can make the world look different um, more generally and, uh, and that that different might be fertile, helpful and healing. Oh, that's beautiful. And I, I feel that for myself. For sure. In Entangled Life, How Fungi Makes Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures, you write, quote, the politics of symbiosis have always been fraught. Is nature fundamentally competitive or cooperative? A lot turns on this question. For many, it changes the way we understand ourselves. It isn't surprising that these issues remain a conceptual and ideological tinderbox, end quote. Oh, yeah, and thinking through the history and philosophy of science, how has the interpretation of symbiotic relationships changed throughout time? And how does our changing understanding of symbiotic relationships show how science is deeply intertwined with culture? It's a great question. I mean, science has always been something that humans do. You know, it's, 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 it's a human activity. Um, and in fact, I think of it as the sciences, you know, science has never really been one thing, um, one monolithic thing. We tend to think of it that way with science, a singular word with a capital S. But really it's the sciences, which are a diverse collection of practices, methods, uh, values, um, norms, languages, uh, um, codes of conduct. And, um, and that there's lots of ways to be a scientist um, and, and actually... You know, a, 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 an expert in the study of fossilized fishes is a layperson with regards to the distinguished professor of quantum physics, and um, and so, so this yeah, science, the sciences as, as practiced by humans will reflect um, the ways that humans are making sense of their own lives outside their scientific practice, uh, and you often see this in the form of metaphors and analogies. And it, the, the sciences depend on metaphors and analogies, just like humans do in general. But when you use a metaphor and analogy, you are comparing something to something else. And by doing so, you are revealing something of your map, of your net of cultural coordinates. And so you often see um, social values and opinions uh, and, and so forth um, freighted into, into the sciences through, through metaphor and analogy. So when it comes to the study of science, uh, science of the study of, of symbiotic relationships and the various metaphors and analogies used to make sense of these relationships, uh, you have a really quite an amazing window into the lives and values uh, of people at the time, or people surrounding the scientists making these uh, observations in question. Um, and so you can really think about these, uh, these relationships as a prism through which the social values of, of scientists are dispersed. So when the word symbiosis was brought into biology in the late 19th century to describe the lives of uh, lichens, um, it was brought in by this guy called Albert Frank, and he wanted a word to describe the living together of unlike organisms that, that didn't presume to know what that relationship was like. Uh, because until that point, the only way to describe the intimate sharing of bodily space um, was, as, was parasitism or disease. Uh, and that very much, these words very much presume to know what the relationship 
is like, what, you know, how that relationship unfolds, or at least who benefits and who doesn't. So the symbiosis was a way to talk about association, but without, without foreclosing um, that, uh, an understanding of that relationship. So then what you have is, is you have a load of scientists starting to study these, what at the time seemed improbable relationships between different organisms, between unlike organisms. Um, and the analogies and metaphors that were used to make sense of them uh, varied hugely. Um, some people used, in, in the lichens are a great example, some people used analogies of master and slave to describe the alga and the fungus, um, some the relationships between men and women, um, some of the relationships between nations, um, all sorts of, of um, often very problematic analogies were made, revealing the types of um, revealing something of the social context uh, of those making these observations. So um, I think it's really an interesting place to track, um, track changing societies over time, you know, and how do people make sense of, of symbiotic relationships? Um, and you can see, and so today you have a whole range of uh, metaphors on offer uh, to, to talk about, for example, plants and their mycorrhizal fungal partners. You have um, the kind of socialism as kind of utopian vision of sharing and caring. Uh, you have hyper-capitalist metaphors and um, trading on uh, kind of jostling on market floors, uh, um, the economy and the soil. But really, I think the most helpful way to think about it now is um, it's the way that I tend to think about it. No doubt these things will change, but as symbiotic relationships are on a kind of continuum of, of, of who benefits. So you, know, you might think about this continuum with one pole of the continuum being parasitism or disease where one or more partners benefit at the expense of their partner so someone's someone's being harmed uh, and someone's winning from that and then the other end of the, the spectrum you might think about the pole of uh, a mutualism where all the partners benefit from their association and, and in reality most relationships slide around on that continuum you know a given plant and a given fungus you know over the course of their lives together in this one pot in this greenhouse here they both probably benefit from their association, but at any one moment, one of them might be giving more than they get uh, because it's, you know, these things are fluid and, and they're processes in time. So, so that's how I tend to think about them. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of it's about assumption. You know, we, we, we're guided by our societal norms into imagining certain things as possible and certain things as impossible. And we project those possibilities and impossibilities onto the lives of non-human organisms that we seek to understand and thereby often naturalizing or trying to make natural these these human social values so it's a yeah it's a, it's a, a fascinating field and a kind of feedback loop mm -hmm. yeah it's hard for us to understand anything without our human lens on it and uh i don't know how we could ever get out of that but i guess it kind of reminds me of uh, trying to differentiate between metaphor and reality and in an interview with robert McFarlane, you say, quote, but I've come to think of our minds as the most mycelial parts of ourselves. Mycelium is a living, growing, opportunistic investigation, speculation, and bodily form. A portrait of someone's mind might look something like a mycelial network. Mind maps certainly do. It soon became clear that mycelium would be a foundational metaphor for the book, whether I liked it or not, end quote. Yeah, so I'm really interested in what you see as the line between metaphor and reality. And of course, clearly metaphor is incredibly helpful in explaining and understanding concepts, but especially when dealing with such amorphous and tangled subject matter, what is metaphor 
cross the line into, or when does metaphor cross the line into reality? And maybe how can we fully understand where mycelial connection begins and ends? Well, I think it's very difficult for us to really understand that because it's so difficult even just to see the fungal network outside in the bustling wilds of a soil in a forest. Um, you know, when you take, when you, when you harvest, when you sample a fungal network, a bit of soil, you've, you've broken the network, you've destroyed it, it's destructive. And so we can't see through um, soil. You can see there's you no know, mycelium growing on the surface of a log, for example, or, or under fallen leaves on the floor of a forest. But it's rare that, or um, impossible really for us to see in situ the fungal network doing its thing, engaging in its life and the, the crazy labyrinths that they live within. So I, I think it's very difficult for us to, to, to make sense of mycelium. I think there are lots of, of ways that this way of life challenges our animal imaginations. When it comes to metaphor, I just think language is fundamentally metaphorical and, 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 it, and it reveals a, maybe a basic truth about, about life that, you know, that we were talking earlier about how all organisms live somehow in relation to, to, to many other organisms, um, that no life can happen by itself even in principle. And so when we're talking about webs of meaning, like we have in language, that no, no particle of meaning can mean by itself, even in principle. And you see this relationality of language, of different bits of language and particles of language and particles of meaning revealed in the form of metaphors and analogies where, where there are links, there's a kind of conceptual rhyme, some kind of kinship between, kinship in meaning between different concepts uh, or words that, that, that reveal the, the webness uh, of, of the language and the fact that you need this web of interrelation to, to have anything called language in the first place. So maybe the fundamental um, importance of metaphor and the way we make sense of the world is actually revealing something about the, the, the interrelationship of the world itself. And maybe a personal question for you around these interrelationships is how do you think that your way of seeing has been shifted and complemented and even challenged by, say, your family or your partner. I know you have such incredible joint projects with those closest to you. I'd really love to hear how you feel you're in symbiosis or are entangled with, with your family. Yeah, I mean, on so many levels, and so many levels one's aware of, and so many levels you know, I'm not aware of. And sometimes these relationships fruit in the form of you know, official projects that you're doing together. It's like, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to make something together. It might look like this. It might look like that. Um, but a lot of the time, you are just existing. And, and that existing, that, you know, the, 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 so the growing tip um, of my life is, is growing out from a, a, a kind of tangle of, of association and relationship um, with my um, with my family and with my loved ones who have um, shaped me, um, shaped the conditions in which I can grow and feel and imagine and, um, and, and are somehow imprinted in me um, in all of the ways that that influence has, um, has formed a, a kind of a core, a become a core part of my being. So yeah, so I think there's a lot of um, that happens in many, many ways. Um, one project that was, um, that's been fun recently is, is with, my wife Erin Robinson is a poet, and we um, we we did a project together called Return Address, uh, and it stemmed from this uh, an idea that um, 
actually, um, David Abraham is a, who's a, is a friend, a, an ecolog ecologist and a philosopher. Um, we were chatting with him about prayer, the nature of prayer. And he said that in, in his view, um, prayer was simply talking to the world rather than about the world. And um, we were playing with this idea for some time and, um, and realized that we do a lot of talking about the world. At least certainly I talk, do a lot of talking about the world. And I've, in the educational frameworks that I've been um, brought up within and trained within, there's a lot of talking about the world. And so talking directly to the world, it seemed like a wonderfully simple way to address the relationships that, that exist that make up the living world, whether or not we like it uh, or think about them. And so the practice of this, the, 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 um, the exercise, which, which took the form of a, a kind of essay by me and then a series of poems by Erin and, and, and really a, a, a kind of workshop where we would lead groups. And the prompt was people were invited to, to, to go out and to so be outside, go and find some entity. It could be the sun, it could be a wave on the sea, it could be the sea, it could be a rock, it could be a grain of sand, it could be a bucket of sand, it could be a tree, what, no, any, a pine needle, pine cone, uh, a, a branch of a pine tree, any number of you know, whatever you chose. And then to address the entity directly, to turn the third person into the second person, to call it a you you know, how are you doing? Oh, you look so good today. You know, and Aaron had this wonderful list of um, ways in to help people get started. You know, compliments are a great way, easy way to start if you're, if you're trying to address your pine needle and you're feeling a bit awkward. Um, and this actually was a very simple practice to turn, the, to turn the, you know, the living world into a you or the entity into a you rather than it. But it, it's very profound. Uh, it kind of changes everything. It changes the orientation that we have towards that entity because what you're doing by changing the, uh, from the third person, the it, into the second person, the you, is that you're acknowledging that the entity that you're addressing is a locus of experience. Um, and, you know, the, the, this high needle, the pine branch, the stone, the sand, the sun, these are all entities subjected to changing environments. And they respond to these changing environments in all sorts of ways, some of which we understand, many of which we don't. And so... By honoring the, the entity as a locus of experience, uh, by calling it a you, and by putting yourself into direct relationship, by using the second person, and all sorts of wonderful things start to happen. And it's quite subtle, but, but can be quite, quite amazing uh, how it just changes the tone of, of one's engagement. So it's, um, you know, it's, not that, it's not that we expected the, the, the stone um, or, the, or the pine tree to understand our human language. But it was more an exercise to remind ourselves that humans aren't the only organisms worth addressing. Uh, that we live in a world of relationship and, uh, and interrelation um, and a world of communication. Because without communication, no organisms could coordinate their togetherness. And that communication happens in many types of languages, in chemical languages, in visual languages, sonic languages, all sorts of languages. But anyway, that's, that's one project that we, that, that we did together. And it was you know, bridging this, the perspectives from the biological perspectives to poetic perspectives. And it was really fun and, and, um, and fruitful.
thank you so much for sharing that. I really got lost in your response and I feel really drawn to speaking to the world and not about the world. Especially now, I think when I was awakening to the world, I was really interested to learn about the world because it seemed all new and it seemed like I was unlearning and breaking apart my conditioning and lies of what I had been taught. But at this point, I crave the elemental. And I think that speaking to the world, to the earth, is so much about being with the elements uh, and not philosophizing about them, but being present with them and how that shifts an entire worldview, ideology, lifestyle. It's incredible. And I feel like for the first time, maybe practicing being human, you know, not cyborg, not not modern, but just being in this body with the earth body. And yeah, I can't seem to want to leave that connection. So thank you for sharing that because I really, I think, spoke to a lot of what I've been in process with recently. There's something else you said that struck me about, I think it was the rock and the changing environment. With climate change and gosh, all that we're losing, the Anthropocene extinction. I know for so long I wanted to cling onto a steady state, something stable. But maybe the truth is the earth is just not stable. And so I'm like wondering in my own work, although I fight mines and salmon habitat, and that's still something I I don't want to give up doing, but I wonder with so much work in whether it's the conservation world or the climate change world, if that's what I can call it for now, are we fighting for something that isn't actually realistic? Hmm. I mean, we know just from you know, looking back, we've known since since deep time as a concept has, has arrived in the field of human inquiry in the 19th century, that this story of Earth is a story of astonishing change. Um, in so many ways, yeah. When you're living, life is a process um, unfolding in time, and there are reverberations in that process. There are cycles, uh, and there are rapid transitions into radically different states. Um, but you know, if you think about things in terms of processes, rather than if you think about you know, the, the, the fundamental nature of reality as a process in time, uh, which modern physics actually reveals to us because, you know, we might think of stuff as matter as pretty, you know, hard and solid and unchanging um, substance, like a substance. Um, but actually when you boil it down to atoms and molecules, you find energy bound within fields. And, and that's much more like a process than a thing. Um, but if you think the world is made up of things, fundamentally made up of things or substances, then the kind of questions you ask are, are quite different. So if, you, if you're a substance person for whom you know, the fundamental nature of reality is, is uh, substances which are recombined in, uh, in various forms to give us the, the world we see and experience. If you're a substance person, because the fundamental nature of reality is substance, um, that substance is stable until it's changed. So the questions you ask about the world is how does anything change? Because left to its own devices, substances will stay the same. You know, matter in motion um, until a force is exerted to change something, it won't change. 
So if you're a substance person, the question you tend to ask is, how do things change? Um, but if you're a process person, the fundamental nature of reality is endless flux and change. Um, the question you ask is different because everything is always changing. The fundamental nature of reality is to change. Then the question you ask is, well, why does anything remain stable? How do we find stability in a world of fundamental flux? You know, and, and in reality, I think we need a bit of both of these perspectives because um, there are lots of things that do have stability, enough stability for us to think of them meaningfully as um, a substance um, or, 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 or potentially a thing. But I think that this dynamic between process and substance understandings is something that we see enacted in a really fundamental, um, a deep mythological sort of archetypal framework in the form of um, habit and creativity. So you see this in, in Hindu traditions um, personified in the form of Shiva, the god of change, of creation and destruction, of flux, a creativity, you might say. Uh, and then uh, Vishnu, uh, who's a preserver of order, so the, the, the preserver the, uh, of habit, yeah, and, and how things can um, continue as they have. Um, and in reality, one needs a bit of chaos and a bit of uh, and a bit of stability. You know, we, we need we need habits and we need creativity. Um, we need um, always some measure of of flux of novelty. Um, but a total overdose of novelty and flux would be. Uh, totally overwhelming. There would be no forms that would arise uh, in our mind. If you start with the level of a mind, like no stable ground, no, um, no firm concept, no, um, it would be exhausting and terrifying uh, and a kind of madness maybe. And uh, in, the, in the physical world, um, you wouldn't have any kind of you know, stable molecules forming into, into compounds which would form into um, you know, usable structures that could be uh, manipulated by living organisms into the form of their bodies and, and so on. Um, but without any creativity, you'd be locked in uh, endless cycles of repetition. Uh, and so um, it, it would be impossible to say is it on the human level to have a new thought, to, to deal with a new situation, a situation you hadn't con been confronted with before. It, nothing would ever change. So you wouldn't be living in an evolutionary life story on a planet that's in constant flux. So, so, you know, you need this, you need this balance of, of these two of the habit and creativity. And, um, and sometimes we stand perhaps in our lives more in a place of habit because we're dizzy with flux, you know, and we want that, we want that stability. And sometimes we um, dive into the flux because we're, we're stifled and constrained by the stability that, that that's become um, suffocating and, and hard. So I think, you know, as, as, as living organisms, we, we, we deal with this dance. I think it really is a kind of dance. Um, all the time. And I think all organisms deal with this dance. And I think um, you see this playing out on, on, on a physical level uh, in all sorts of interesting ways. So, yeah, so when you talk about the, you know, the stability and the, this question you posed, then, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm, I'm led to um, and, and, and to appreciation of the, of the dynamic dance and, and the necessity of both, both the habit and the creativity, both the chaos and the order. Mm. Oh. That actually felt relieving to hear that. Uh, I sometimes get so wrapped up in the heartbreak and the anxiety of what's happening to the earth and and working in restoration and conservation. I think when I was when I first started, it was very exciting because it's felt like a creative response 
to the destruction, to the chaos, felt stabilizing. But the more that I practiced it, you know, with restoration, and I was really into micro-remediation, and I was thinking, what are we restoring to? Are we restoring to pre-colonial times? Who's deciding on where and how and what species? And it started to kind of lose some of its momentum for me. And maybe it's really, I'm speaking more specifically about forest restoration, maybe we're just deciding on what biodiversity we want in that moment. And if that's what it is, then okay, fine. I want to hear that. But I think the powers that are choosing what restoration is feels a bit, it has this weird control element that I can't quite wrap my head around. And then on the other hand, with conservation, although of course important, and I'm still working in that world and I don't plan to move out of it exactly, but the transactional nature of it, the capitalistic nature of it. I'm from the outside, I go, oh gosh, yes, let's protect this place. Let's um, make sure no resource extraction happens. But then, but then what it takes to do that and what land is protected and what land is spared, you know, and then I can I go in a step further into where we're headed with the electrification of our energy systems and more and more extraction. And when I was when I was researching for this interview and I was looking into what you were doing with the and, and Juliana Forci, who I adore, who I've had on the podcast before, and the Fungi Foundation, helping to conserve places through fungal diversity. I love it. And I'm also I'm in that tension of sitting in the trouble of where we go from here. Hmm. Yeah, well, there are many there are many difficult questions that face anyone who hopes to mitigate the ecocidal destruction unfolding at pace and um but i think your 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 piece about conservation and um and restoration is 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 very interesting in light of this question of stability and change because yeah so what baseline are you 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 going to restore to what are you optimizing for these are all choices that we're making um what are you conserving? What state are you conserving? What you know, what state in the in the in the the long evolution of this you know, ecosystem or, or or whatever we're discussing? Um, are you going to to keep it at? Um, and and I think that there are, there are lots of problems there. And and um, you know we could end up creating theme parks, which are you know, ecological states which never really exist in the wild, uh, or we can end up harking back to to you know, fantastical, nostalgic places because of all sorts of reasons, many of which can be problematic. Or we can just simply get it wrong when we're restoring and plant the wrong kind of tree in the wrong kind of place because of ignorance or because of other kinds of incentives that have been um, laid on top of the process. There are so many ways to get it wrong and um, to cause harm and, and, and to cause more, more problems. Um, and I don't think that means we shouldn't do it. And and I think there are lots of ways that we can that we can start to. I think imagining ourselves in relationship is a very is a key way to go. And to imagine a, a symbiotic picture of life, um, where you know all, all organisms are improvising through time, 
I, I think about this a lot about how you know, we're improvising in this conversation. We're imp improvising in our lives. You know, we have constraints within which we improvise, and we have fields of possibility which confront us. And the way that we navigate um, a changing world is improvisatory. Uh, uh, but humans aren't the only organisms improvising. Um, all organisms are improvising within their constraints and, and within the field of possibility that they face, their degrees of freedom. And and so when you think about it like that, you know, it's like, yeah, well, we, no, we might not be conserving an ecosystem which really existed before humans, or, or we might be restoring this in a pretty dodgy way, but you know, we're planting the wrong tree in the wrong place. But if in the bigger picture, you know, we're, we're sort of improvising our way through time together with other organisms, also improvising their way through time. And, and wild and strange things happen, you know. Um, we, there are blockbuster relationships that transform the fortunes of all parties involved. Think about humans and horses, for example, humans and yeast, or humans and apples, uh, or, or many plants, uh, flowering plants and, and bees, and the pollinators. And think about how these associations, it might have just arisen quite serendipitously at one point but then they can spin the whole trajectory into a different direction because suddenly there's dance partners involved and and one's improvising with these other organisms and all the organisms involved have uh, agendas and um, evolutionary interests uh, and um, are responding um, to the other uh, and to these changes so when you look at it like that you know it was sort of dancing through time in this improvisatory way uh, with other organisms and some things are, uh, you know don't unfold very well and some things uh, unfold more successfully but if you see it as part of that bigger story then maybe it's less i don't know i, I find it quite heartening to think about it like that uh, i'm not sure why but it just it, it makes me feel like well um you know just, we're, we're, we're we're growing uh, we're growing with well, we're we're listening um we're listening with we're responding uh, and as long as one is you know doing one's best to respond to listen to be in relationship to to behave in a way which is not ecocidal in a way that that likes life then it's better to be doing that than to be doing nothing mm -hmm. yeah that again you have a you have a way of relieving my <laughs> uh broken heart it's like okay yeah that makes sense and and we are constantly dancing with others and we don't know how one connection sprouts a new one and where that where that takes us. And I guess maybe you could share a bit about some ways you're improvising, whether through Spun or Moth or the More Than Human Project. I know you're doing so many things to be in relationship with the earth as it is right now. So yeah, I'd love to hear about how you're dancing with these projects. Well, a lot of my work at the moment is... Um... There's, there's fungal research, you know, the work of research, especially mycorrhizal fungi. And these are fungi that live in association with plants that exist in trading relationships with plants. And plants supply their fungal partners that grow in and around their roots with um, energy compounds like sugars or fats that they've produced in photosynthesis. And the fungi, in return, supply plants with nutrients like nitrogen or phosphorus that they've foraged from the soil. And, um, and together they make what we call plants and, and soils. So one part of my work with a, with a wonderful team um, based in Amsterdam is looking at a very, very small scale, looking at mycorrhizal networks, imaging the flows of material inside these uh, networks to try and understand how these fungi are communicating with themselves and, and with plants, how they're able to move 
material around their rambling networks of bodies, um, their bodies which are really bodies without a body plan, subject to continual revision, remodeling. There's a wild kind of intelligence there, and we know too little about it. So we're trying to um, to try and understand on this very small scale um, what you know how they're coordinating their lives, and then we're also through the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, or SPUN, trying to look at the very very big scale, trying to map the mycorrhizal communities of the planet. So look at this global scale to try and understand who lives where and, and what everyone's doing. And, um, and the reason why these maps um, could be really important is because there's lots of people who understand that these fungal relationships are a, a, a key uh, um, um, and fundamental to the life as we know it. But anyone who wants to take this information into account um, it's very difficult for them to do so because it's, you don't really know who's on the, the, in the soil under your feet. You know, we, we have maps of ocean currents, we have maps of global vegetation, we have maps of uh, climatic maps, um, but we don't have maps about of who's living where underground. And so, part of the purpose of making these maps is to enable decision makers to um, to take these lives into account when making their decisions. Yeah. So the research is very small. The research is very big. And then, really, you know, embarking on this project. Um, together with my wonderful collaborators and Toby Kears is one, Juliana Furchi is one, and to try and turn this amazing data, this growing body of data, into um, information that that can be um, that can really make a difference, and um, that might look like bringing these data sets into legal settings, set, let's say legal settings into environmental litigation, so, so suing a government or suing a corporation uh, on the basis of the destruction that they are causing to the underground world. Um, it might look like trying to influence policy by, um, by writing fungi into conservation frameworks uh, and agreements. But yeah, basically the world looks different when you have a fungal lens, the world looks different and the decisions you make are different. Um, and so... Uh, trying to use this, these these fungal data sets um, to, to to build a fungal lens that can be applied to various, often terrifyingly large, uh, world making um, decision making bodies uh, and processes, um, and so it's it's a thrilling moment really, and um, to draw our awareness towards the underground, towards these the lives, these hidden lives that are responsible for so much and yet live so out of our sight and. Um, so yeah, so working across these different fields and disciplines is is, is very exciting, and, and we have a wonderful collaborators in the form of Cesar Rodriguez at NYU, uh, and who's convened a, a gathering called uh, a kind of collective called the Moth Collective, More Than Human um, Rights Collective, and it's trying to deepen work out ways by bringing together an interdisciplinary group of, of lawyers, judges, scientists, philosophers, artists. To deep to want to to really think very broadly and experimentally about ways to deepen and expand legal frameworks to reflect the fact that we are living on a very 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 multi species planet um, locked in very 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 multi species relationships uh, and embedded in a living world um, yeah are there ways that we can deepen and expand our legal systems to to take account of this and 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 in doing so help to steer us off. Um, the um, destructive course that we are, we are so locked into. So that's a really uh, wonderful um, project and, and so special to spend time with people in so many disciplines. You know, coming together with different ways of thinking about problems, different ways of posing problems, different kinds of question 
uh, and just being together and and you know hashing things out and playing really um and there are various you know interesting projects which are emerging from that um coming together from that convening um so yeah those are a few things get into the weeds a bit with both the research for mapping biodiversity of fungi and then the legal aspect, what would one do with these tools? Like in the project I'm working on up here in Alaska to stop or halt this proposed mine under a glacier on one of the last rivers that hold all five species of wild salmon, there's many ways of halting a project like that. And some of it is definitely legal. Some of it is research based on ecological biodiversity. There's there's so many ways to, uh, I don't want to say skin a cat, <laughs> but that's what came to me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how you would take fungi through the process of protecting a place and the power of that place coming through these different tools of, I guess, society and modernity? I think there are lots of ways to do it. I mean, one, one example, um, there's a collaboration I'm working on at the moment with, um, with Spun, um, with Giuliana Fudge and the Funky Foundation, and with the um, Moth Collective, and with the Sariaku people, and indigenous people in Ecuador. And what we're doing is, together with the Sariaku, uh, Sariaku have been involved in all sorts of uh, battles about their land and, and have won and been very successful in their, in their, um, in their battles to defend their line f- land from, from mining and from um, oil drilling. And one of the things that's going on right now is that they have, uh, uh, they've just won a case very recently um, in, in, the, in the Ecuadorian Constitutional Court. And they have, they have a huge amount of dynamite that's been buried on their territory by a mining company, but never detonated. And there's this question of how they get rid of it. The government has a legal obligation to, to remove it in consultation with the Sariaku. And so the Sariaku really are fighting for this not to be detonated because to do so would be to blow up a whole portion of the forest. And in their worldview, the living forest, Kausak Satra, um, is, is, you know, the forest is a, is a living whole. And, um, and their home and part of them. Uh, and, um, and so where, where our project comes in together is that by describing fungal communities and underground, um, we'll be able to go provide data sets which the Sariaku can then take to the Ecuadorian government and say, look, this untold diversity underground that doesn't feature in our wranglings usually because we don't have ways to describe it. We've now got ways to describe it and we've described it and here it is. And these are some of the many, many, many lives that you will destroy by blowing up this dynamite. Um, or by installing another mine somewhere, or, and, so, and so on. Um, so, to, being armed with the data to describe the life in, in, in the depths of the soil, which until this point has been uh, a pretty much a black box, it gives one quite a lot of power in in negotiation um, and in um, in any conversation about land, because we're talking about what's living in the land, 
you know, um, this isn't just some place, uh, you know, a container for water and nutrients. This is this is home to a quarter of the world's species live underground. And so, one, the way that one can describe that diversity, um, there's all sorts of ways that the conversation can change. Um, and so, we're very interested in this, in this particular collaboration about the way that that, that fungi can um, support indigenous land uh, rights uh, fights and lead us into a more interconnected view of a forest. You know, fungi lead us there because they are networks. They weave life into relation. Um, so uh, they, they naturally uh, can take us there. But uh, a particular interest in this case is, is the way that, you know, that, that by describing fungi, we can, we can help equip local communities to, to better um, keep hold of their land and in order to steward it in a way which is um, appropriate and that likes life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could really see now how this could be something that shapes legislation in the future. And I think hearing stories of success is so important for us because we need to understand the frameworks that succeed and be able to mold them to our places. And we can try all of these different tools at beating back the ecocidal empire and I guess I'm thinking about this quote from Entangled Life, and you write, quote, fungi might make mushrooms, but first they must unmake something else. Now that this book is made, I can hand it over to the fungi unmake. I'll dampen a copy and seed it with plutorious mycelium. When it has eaten its way through the words and pages and end papers and sprouted oyster mushrooms from the covers, I'll eat them, end quote. With a fungal mentality, what would it look like to consume a rotting ecocidal ideology? How could we decompose that in our minds and our communities? And what could fruit on the other side of that? Mm. I think rotting and decomposition is a really good way of thinking about this. A really powerful metaphor from, from the living world. Um, if, if there's something that's harmful or doing, um, causing great problems... Let's decompose it. Let's transform it. And um, let's take what's good. Let's take the bits of value and and and, and you know, cycle them, spin them around into some uh, into some new cycle of transformation where where they can form part of other entities. And the nice thing about decomposition is that you might think about what what are the conditions if you want to compost something like a bucket of kitchen waste, for example. You think about what the conditions that you need to to compost it. You you, know, you need moisture and some warmth and but a lot of the, the, them, you don't, you don't worry usually about the microbial communities. They're already there. Um, so you kind of create the conditions for the decomposition to happen. And it's being managed by other lives that one can enter into a relationship with. So yeah, so I think that's a powerful metaphor to think about these big damaging, ecocidal, um, destructive, uh, lethal forces that, that, that are uh, causing so much harm at the moment. Because all of those are composite entities made up of so many, so many other um, entities and ultimately made up of people making decisions and and so the decomposition metaphor allows us to think about what the transformation of that some parts could um reorganize i wouldn't subscribe to a, a view that would that would involve destroying every you know, unit of a destructive system uh, because some of those units would be people and some of those people would be me um and so there's some way of thinking about this transformation and decomposition as 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 a rearrangement uh, of possibility, uh, kind of restructuring and um, 
yeah, the, the, the transformation rather than destruction. And um, so, yeah, we might think about what are the conditions? What can we do? What are the conditions that we can create to hasten this on its way? Who are the beings we can partner with to hasten this on its way? And what are the many nutrients and you know, delicious, health-giving byproducts of this decomposition or fermentation? What are the ways that we might be nourished by uh, the transformation of, of these unhelpful frameworks into, into more helpful frameworks? What, you know, what nutrients would be released um, and who could they feed? Mm. You know, so much of what I've been thinking this conversation is about surrendering to the unknown, to the mystery, to the weirdness. And, and I love how much the fungal world illuminates that for us. And so I would just really appreciate hearing your thoughts on how the fungal world can help teach us about surrender. It's a very big question. Um, one, one way that I've, I've you know, enjoyed learning from fungi about this is in fermentation, um, say fermenting a cider or a beer. And you've got a, a, a jar um, with big populations of microbes, you know, of yeasts and bacteria and all doing their thing. And, and there, are some, there are some dials, you know, you can fiddle with. There are some parameters that you're in control of. Temperature, you know, the oxygen levels. But these, are, these aren't really... It's not really ways to, that you, you're not really in control of what these organisms do. You're kind of luring them. You're kind of guiding them as much as you can, but they are responding in the way that they will respond. And, um, and the more one ferments, the more this becomes clear. There's a kind of push and a pull. And, and um, especially when working with wild um, cultures and um, wild populations of microbes. And um, so I've, I've felt this, this really this beautiful dance in those situations where you just, well, you know, I have some, some things are within my control, but, but loads of things aren't. And, um, and I really have to be responsive uh, and, and in some kind of dance with these communities of, of fungi. And, and, that was a, and that was a really helpful you know, realization about, about control and about how so often we aren't really in control, but we can lure things. We can, we can set lures that can attract that can attract you know, entities or communities of entities towards certain outcomes. Um, you can't force them to go there. You can sort of, you can tempt them. Um, I, and I think things become much more fun when thinking about influence that we can have, um, such as we have it in terms of luring and tempting, um, inviting, rather than kind of pushing and controlling and dominating. Mm, I like that. And I really appreciate the time and the thought and really the care and heart that you put into your work and how you're adding to a really powerful movement of earth lovers and people who want to be in deeper relationship with what's around them. Yeah. So thank you. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to For the Wild. The music in today's episode is by Matthew David. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Krupp, Jose Alejandro Rivera, and Evan Tenenbaum.
Thank you.